there's always a FinReg Angle, the podcast providing you with the latest news and commentary on financial regulation. Brought to you by Global Custodian. Hello and welcome to the third episode of season four of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, Managing Editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually, as always, by a pair of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy and Virginia O'Shea. Welcome both. Hello. Hey there. Sean, that's a clearer line than usual. Where are you? Yeah, I know. I'm, 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 I'm calling in from a lovely uh, southeastern coastal Massachusetts. Brilliant. Apparently, which has superior Wi-Fi to Dublin. Apparently so. Who knew? Yeah. It's like living in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> Good stuff. And Virginia, how are you? Did you enjoy the finale of The Last of Us, if you've seen it? I did. Yes. Yes. We all watched that here. It was, it was a good one. Uh, mushroom apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. How far off it are we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we won't, we won't have any spoilers from, from that one, but uh, I, I've just got back from a couple of weeks away, but I did notice that I tried to take two weeks off and, and while I'm away, I see the two of you trying to organize a podcast because you know, I can't <laughs> have any time off apparently because in air quotes, so much is happening. I guess FinReg doesn't take annual leave. eh? No, but, definitely not. So we do have quite a lot to talk about. I'm, I'm still kind of catching up on the whole banking collapses, the, the bailouts versus non-bailouts and whatever's going on at Credit Suisse. Um, so I think I'm going to let you two talk about the FinReg angles of, of all of that. And, and I'd love to get to T plus one, if time permits. Um, and it may be a two-parter, three-parter, or, or something we talk about till um, May 2024. <laughs> also that. But uh, let's go first. I mean, today... Even today, I think we've had the, the cybersecurity proposals from the SEC. So which, which one of you has been diving into that? Surely, uh, Virginia, surely you have. Yeah, I sat through the three or and a bit hours of the SEC commissioners arguing with each other about cybersecurity uh, yesterday. That was fun. Um, so they've got a massive number of updates. I mean, I think it's around just one of them is 400 pages, just to give you a sort of scale of what the, the, the level of the proposals they're putting out there. And they've got three. So we've got a lot of reading ahead of us. Um, one is a big update to Reg SCI, uh, which looks at market infrastructures and trying to get them to improve their cybersecurity. So there's a lot of different angles to that. They're expanding the coverage uh, to other types of entities. They've, they've kind of twigged to what's going on with Dora the Explorer and adding in um, things related to cloud and oversight and reporting on that side of things. So that's sort of been added into Reg SCI. Uh, we've also got Reg SP, which I had forgotten about, to be fair, because <laughs> there's so many random um, acronyms and regulations that the SEC has put out over recent years. But Reg SP is a bit more like GDPR, I would have said. So that mm-hmm. one's sort of the, the love child of um, Dora and uh, GDPR, which is a horrifying thought. But um, <laughs> It's it's looking at data disclosure when firms have had data breaches or had their data nicked and letting their clients know that that data has been um, interfered with potentially. So uh, obviously there were some requirements in Reg SP already, but it's expanding those requirements, um, requiring you know a certain number of uh, you know hours you have to report to the regulator on data breaches. Um, and prove that you're addressing uh, the underlying problems. And also there's requirements very similar to GDPR about data disposal as well and how Mm -hmm. you use it in terms of processing, all that kind of nonsense. So that one's fairly big. And then the last one, which is the 400-page one, I think, 
um, is the uh, massive cybersecurity proposal, um, which kind of ties in with the um, what's it, the White House focus on cybersecurity. So I think it's kind of a response to what uh, the Biden administration put out a couple of weeks ago about improving cybersecurity in the industry as a whole and across the industries. Um, so that one is massive. And it's all about, um, you know, documentation, governance of cybersecurity and reporting to regulators within two or three days, I think it is, that you have to, if, you, if you're attacked, um, you have to let the regulator know and let them know the details um, of what happened to you and how you recovered things or how you're dealing with it. So if you're paying a ransom, I guess you have to let the huh. regulator know. There you go. The full lowdown. <laughs> Pretty good. You just put a, a, a lot of lawyers out of work there, Virginia. <laughs> sure. Did you uh, take some time out of your trip to, to catch up with all those changes? Yeah. I mean, I sort of, I mean, there's a lot there. And I think, I mean, thematically, it sort of falls with what we've talked about previously. I mean, this is, in a lot of ways, the US playing catch up to what Europe did last decade in terms of addressing some of these issues with with enhanced or new regulation. Um, I think, you know, cyber, everyone takes cyber seriously, but I think this is the best way I look at it with all the reporting and disclosures. It's sort of the way a lot of the immediate post GFC regulation was about sort of disclosing more interconnectedness and risk. It's letting get regulators have a better idea of what, where the cyber risks are. And also gently pushes people to continue to invest in upgrade, upgrading their, their sort of protections. So, I think that's sort of thematically where it is. And it's another example of what we definitely have talked about the last couple of times is that like, well, Gensler's sort of like crusade against cyber gets all the headlines and, you know, that's the the sexy stuff. Like the SEC is doing a lot and this is the stuff that's really much more impactful to like 98% of the industry. And this is the stuff that people need to be paying attention to and not getting caught up or distracted by the, the sort of the cyber stuff. Yeah. It was, it was interesting listening to the SEC commissioners, to, I'm going to put that in air quotes, interesting to some extent, listening to some of their arguments, because obviously on, there's always uh, counter arguments from Hester Pierce and uh, Ureda. Mm. Um, and their point was, you've put out three different pieces of regulation and you haven't looked at the net effect of all three of them, because there are firms like transfer agents that are caught in the middle of all three regs. Um, which is quite burdensome. So, and there's repetition and some degree of conflict. So, like the EU, I think they've gone down the same path of putting stuff out without thinking about the net effect, which is, I guess, something they'll they'll get feedback on over the next, you know, few weeks or few months um, when the sort of industry cons- consultation goes out. But certainly, custodians and transfer agents um, were highlighted by uh, those two saying you know have a look have a deep look at this and see exactly what it means for your business because it especially on data breach disclosure it's it's it could be quite tricky yeah i mean i think it's a really fair point like i mean i think like it used to be the knock on the eu regs that they used to come in fast and furious and not fully consider the overlap or conflict between the pieces in that typically the u.s didn't have the same approach but in the last year or so i think that's definitely become an increasing issue that it's hard to the speed at which this stuff is coming out, it doesn't seem like they're, I totally agree. It doesn't seem like they're considering all the angles, which makes it really hard for industry participants to figure out a, to respond to these consultations. Cause you got to sort of cross-reference them yourselves and try to make sure that, you know, like want your, that it all makes sense cohesively. And it's just, it's a real challenge. It's true. 
And Gensler also added in a lovely, he was to sort of random film references. So his, his frame of reference <laughs> for this was, you've got mail. <laughs> so he started going on about Meg Ryan sending <laughs> Tom Hanks an email and how, and, oh no, an AOL message and how antiquated it was. Right. And that's why the cybersecurity rules have to be improved because that, if that's when the regs were created, then we're beyond that. Which, I mean, is a good enough point, but it was a really random <laughs> throwaway. Yeah, he, he's always good for one moment to try to, like, look hip and make some sort of pop cultural reference, which <laughs> invariably falls a little flat. I'm not sure a movie from the 80s is uh, going to be hip. and <laughs> 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 That's when he needs a Last of Us reference. There you go. <laughs> that, that'll be up to date. Um, well, look, that's that's great. Thanks, and I, I feel like you're both seriously hijacking my T plus one podcast here. But we've also got, I mean, how that happened, and we didn't record a podcast. So, but then other things are happening. So, sure, if I can move things on a little bit, let's yeah. look at the let's look at the Silicon Valley Bank and the, the the banking collapses and what's going on in the US. Well, why don't we take it from a or why don't we apply a film reg angle to it just to um, be be uh, in line with our, our namesake? So, what what, what is the film reg angle to everything that's going on? Because obviously we can't just cover everything. But what, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, so I think look, it's nervy times, and especially for you know the very online people, it seems um, pretty pretty wild right now. But I think the film reg angle, I mean, really boils down to sort of three components. So. The first is in 2018, there was a a rollback of Dodd-Frank or a softening of Dodd-Frank that was under the, the Trump administration. That was, for the time, fairly bipartisan. There was a fair amount of Democrats who signed up to it, which essentially rolled back some of the Dodd-Frank requirements on sm- mid to smaller size uh, regional community banks. So it sort of raised the threshold from $50 billion in assets to, I believe, about $250 billion. Um, and that was done because, I mean, I kind of joke about it, but I'm not sure it's a joke that regional banks and community banks have a lot of power in the U.S. And I'm partly convinced it's because all policymakers have seen it's a wonderful life at some point in their time, and they just can't get Jimmy Stewart out of their mind when they think about banking. <laughs> Film reference, nice. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's essentially that. That's the first point. So they rolled back, and so Silicon Valley. Um, went from being in these rules at the time was like a $70 billion bank to being under the threshold, though at the, it was pushing against the $250 billion um, at the time of its sort of demise. The second FinRag angle is around Basel III standards and some uh, liquidity ratios uh, to sort of help ensure better asset and liability matching for deposits that the Fed essentially went above and beyond the 2018 guidance and did not apply those to a, to a lot of smaller banks. And so where in, whereas in Europe, these liquidity ratios are sort of commonplace for all banks, the Fed decided only to apply them to the, to the biggest banks in the U.S. And there is an argument that had Silicon Valley Bank been producing these liquidity ratios, their issues would become much <clears throat> much brighter and much more obvious. And this leads to the third issue, which is sort of oversight. Um, Silicon Valley Bank was sort of overseen, was overseen by the the San Francisco Fed. Um, And I think there is some justifiable criticism that the Fed did not do its job as a bank supervisor, because by all accounts, it was fairly obvious that SVB was heading into trouble. Um, And they should have been a little more on top of 
top of things. Now, I will say at the end of the day, <clears throat> if a bank wants to blow itself up, it's going to blow itself up. It's actually awfully hard to stop it. So, like, I think where where we got to last week is there was no way, no amount of hope was going to stop, no amount of regulation was going to stop all that money from leaving when we got to a, a real, true, honest to God bank run. So, I think at the like, it's it was sealed, but I think those are the sort of thin rake steps that people will look at now and to determine like what changes or what could have been in the counterfactual and what changes need to be made to sort of the U.S. banking framework. That was a pretty good overview. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Virginia, anything to add? I mean, I think Sean covered most of the bases. I, I think one, one, just one of the, the uh, I guess the scale of it was kind of shocking, um, just from the sort of um, sidelines. I've had a lot of people commenting, on, like, I didn't realise a bank run could happen. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, how much is everything built on trust and, and proper governance is part of the requirement to, to maintaining trust? So <clears throat> risk management and governments are obviously important. So um, that's what we've got regulation for. When you deregulate, you usually get, worse governance so <laughs> the correlation there should really be in people's minds I think yeah I don't know if this is just my short-term memory but it's amazing how many things are happening how many sagas and incidents that are really kind of reaching out into the, the wider mainstream um you know you've had this Archegos Robin Hood mm. um you know it's really oh well, FTX of course <laughs> which is which is to completely fade away this is the best thing that could have ever happened to SPF right <laughs> it's well I mean if you think about it, though, SVB is kind of correlated with some of the crypto stuff because they did yeah. have a lot of crypto firms on their books, right? They were crypto bank, um, essentially, because they they banked all of the fintechs and the crypto firms. And that's part of the problem. <laughs> so yeah. some of this is related. It's not entirely separate. And I think that's another thing that's sort of the outcome of this is those smaller fintechs and cryptos firms, for want of a better word, um, Ponzi schemes sometimes, um, and not, now not able to find a bank to, that wants to take them because of the risk yeah. profile, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the other other side of this that, I mean, SVB is sort of taking some of the oxygen out of the room. But, you you know, like at the same, like two days before, a day before Silvergate, which was the crypto bank, went into administration um, and then Signature Bank over the weekend was shut down for sort of overlap, like lapses and sort of basic governance. But that ties back to Gensler's sort of full court press against crypto and sort of the argument that a crypto is being debanked in the U.S. is certainly starting to look that way. And I think that and that sort of gets a little, it gets muddled because it all happened within like 72 hours of each other. But that's definitely something that I think as we, the dust settles, will have a, a pretty big impact on the sort of the crypto ecosystem. And the only, yeah. So the only other thing I'd say about SVB, why it's such a big, it's interesting. It's, I, I kind of joked about it being a very online issue, but like the major clients of Silicon Valley Bank are very public and vocal people in the venture capital community. So they have a very big soapbox, which made the issue quantums bigger than it probably actually is. And it seemed, you know, I think they, a lot of the, the social media messaging over the month, over the weekend. I think that's the other, the other thing I think regulators are going to need to wrestle with is this is the first sort of first bank crisis or bank run truly in the social media age, you know? Um, and mm -hmm. so what does that mean from a sort of regulatory oversight perspective? If, you know, if social media can be an accelerant to an issue, how are you going to address that? And, and with regards to it being on Twitter and Elon Musk being the owner of Twitter currently, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> Not a big fan of the SEC and, and vice versa, right? Yeah. Incredible trends we've got going on in the last, uh, last few years. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you both for that. And uh, again, well, I think we've addressed some really current things. Uh, I think what we need to do is quickly, very quickly talk about T plus one. Why don't we set it up for another episode? Uh, maybe we can even invite some of our listeners to, to join us as a guest. T plus one, it was it was huge news. I know it's a few weeks old and every kind of man and his dog are putting together a webinar or, or event on it. Um, Virginia, you're moderating most of them, I think. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, if we can set up for, for another episode, what, what are your big, big takeaways in terms of, I guess, the, the short term? Um, because, you know, we, we know the benefits eventually um we know some of the longer term benefits and we're seeing some kind of research out there about uh, pr- preparation but what are the what are the real short-term challenges that, that market participants can need to face up to in the in the coming months or maybe you know towards the end of this year i mean i can start off if you like i did i have done a lot of events on this and i've, I've done a lot of research on it so i mean in terms of the biggest actually there's a lot of debate out there particularly in the uk market about whether t plus one will have any benefits whatsoever for the market so I'm not sure that it's as set in stone as people like to make, make you think. Um, so, so when I was sort of chairing a group discussion the other day, uh, a lot of people came back with, you know, just because we can, does it mean, does it mean we should? Um, which is, you know, I mean, it's a fair enough uh, question to ask, particularly when they were talking about moving to T plus zero eventually um, and it potentially knackering the uh, you know, securities lending um, play in mm. space so and, and lots of uh, revenue and generating opportunities so certainly there's a lot of debate about that still um, I think internationally we've not looked at a lot of the impacts there um, and to be fair a lot of the asset managers just seem completely oblivious in the yeah. US to it actually impacting mm. them there still are um, despite the fact we now have what 14 months to go mm. <laughs> less than that now I'm not even sure um and I, I think just the the lack of coordination between the SEC and the Canadian regulator was really glaring. I mean, it was such an insular decision by the SEC to pick a weekend when it's a, you know a bank holiday in the US and not in Canada. Um, so <laughs> I think a lot of people are quite annoyed about that, including the Canadian regulators. So, but they have to go with it. So, um, but in terms of preparedness, you know, there's obviously the you know looking at liquidity, FX. You have to look at all of your asset servicing that may be impacted. I mean, there's so many different bits to yeah. you know client communications and support that you have to think about as well, and trying to get your clients on board with being more automated, which is, you know, not going to go down well. I, they, I, they don't want to pay for anything. Um, so who ends up paying? That's the question, right? Yeah, I mean, I think she did a great job summarizing. I mean, I think, I like, the the whole date in not coordinating with the uh, with the Canadian regulators was sort of really a throwback to the Gary Gensler we all know and love from the CFTC, where he sort of moved US only and didn't really, with no international cooperation. So it was kind of a nice throwback. But I think... I think there's so much to do. It's almost unfathomable how 14 months is not that far away and how, and I think like, I think as always with these things, you know, like who pay for it is always the big deal. I think Ginny had a uh, meme out there um, with the the three Spider-Mans pointing at each other, (laughs) who who pays for it. And that's a real question. But I think as always with this stuff, the buy side who is, really impacted by it in a lot of ways always ignores it to the last minute. I think that's the real challenge. Like if you're a, yeah. 
you're a, especially if you're a custodian and you gotta, you know, you gotta control and convince your asset management partners and clients to pay attention to this. And they just don't pay to back attention to back office stuff. And I think that's a real challenge. And I think that's the challenge when you think about extending it outside the U S for European mutual funds, for example, it would really be a pretty big change to sort of the capital flow in and out of funds. I mean, try to align with that. No one, it's a little easier to manage in the U S but it's still like those second order effects need to really be thought about now. And, you know, and I think, the buy side is always hard to get to the table for these discussions. Exactly. And all these events and webinars and, and you know, maybe even this podcast. <laughs> yes, we're talking about it <laughs> and we're telling that the, we're, we're outlining and highlighting that the buy side needs to be involved, but they're not. So it's the people that really aren't even involved in the discussion that we're talking about, but that it's kind of like a, um, it was going nowhere with it really because they're, they're not prepared, but they're also not engaging at this point. Although I think it was um, our team were at, the fix event in uh, London last week and, and the trading desks are talking about it. It's, it's the biggest kind of worry for them. Hmm. In the UK, in the UK, they're talking about it. Yeah. yeah. I, I just don't think it's, it's not continental Europeans, Asia. Asia yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of flows from Asia into the U S market. What the hell happens with regards to the time zone challenges there? That's what I think is a thing that, especially Gensler needs to think about in terms of the time frame for implementation. Is it going to impact their foreign investment flows? And if yeah. so, does that do something bad to the US economy at a time when the, <laughs> we're in a recession and everything's not looking so rosy? That's yeah. another thing that's, that's a moving part here. I mean, the time difference means it's like you've got to get your post-trade activity done in, what, two hours? <laughs> it's pre- pre-funding, yeah. I mean, yeah. there'll have to be huge process changes to, to be yeah. able to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, essentially for Asia, it's for all intents and purposes T plus zero at this point. Like if you're going to T plus one, so it is mm-hmm. going to be a mess and a lot of work. Like I think, and I go back to the point. And I don't, I don't want to be laboring because I always come off cynical on this podcast. That I like, we moved, we're moving to T plus one for like fairly ridiculous reasons to begin with. Like the catalyst, if you go all the way back to when we started the podcast, was because mm-hmm. Robinhood couldn't manage its liquidity and risk um i'm not sold that this is going to make the world that much better like i'm not i'm not really sold on the benefits i know dtcc and everyone's trying their hardest to talk us into it but like it just doesn't i'm not sure like it's not going to be bad but i'm not sure like we're gonna get all the way through this i'm not sure things are going to be you know some sort of utopia um appreciably better place Mm, interesting take T2S all over again, eh? <laughs> I mean, the best the best case scenario is it really does force investment in automation and processes yeah. that are being held together with like duct tape and paper clips. But I mean, I, I think that's almost a second order effect to the actual, you know, benefit of T plus one. It's in isolation. But I mean, to that point, though, you could not possibly replace those systems within a 14 month time frame. It's impossible. That's that's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, the shortening of the time frame in itself is a stupid thing for the SEC to do because people do a, a bodge job of it. 100%. Yeah. I mean, like, there's no time to do real systems overall. So, you're going to, it's going to be workarounds and fudges and more duct tape to make yeah. the deadline. So, last, last question for me then is what, what happens on that day or the day after if you're not ready? I think they'll postpone it. I think they'll be forced to postpone it regardless. If they don't, we'll have a massive 
increase in settlement fails. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing that's going to happen pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I totally agree. Like I, if you were cynical, you would say that they said it, the SEC set an aggressive deadline fully intending to sort of give a no action delay, but just to scare people into paying attention. That's a hot take. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> let's pick this up again next week. Let's, let's go into all those details. Let's talk about effects. Let's talk about securities lending. Let's talk about um, you know the, the impact in Europe and Asia because it's, it's some fascinating stuff. Um, there's some really cool stats out there on kind of readiness and what the biggest worries are. So we're, we'll drill down into it. And, and if you're listening and you want to get involved, do reach out to us and uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get you on the show because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun topic. It's one that's got legs and it's one that we're going to dig deep into over the next uh, 14 months as you highlight so we'll uh, wrap it up for today thanks so much for your thoughts both um sean where can we find your thoughts and views as always you can uh, follow my musings out over on twitter at sm tuffy and uh, virginie what are you up to at the moment Oh, what am I not doing? Um, doing a lot of work uh, on operational resilience. So obviously, cybersecurity is something that I've been talking about. So as you can tell, um, so uh, I'm putting out a report on that topic very soon. Uh, you'll be able to see that um, or I'll highlight it on www.fintechfirebrand.com. And also you can follow me on Twitter at Virginie O'Shea. Excellent. Thanks both. And a short plug from me, Global Custodian has got two Leaders in Custody Award evenings coming up this May. And while we've published a lot of our survey and Editor's Choice shortlist, there's also an opportunity to you, for you to nominate uh, innovation in the industry. Um, and so we're accepting submissions on nominations, both global and then a, in a dedicated event we've got in Singapore on May 25th. So keep an eye out for that and do message us if you want some more information on either of those events. But for now, thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you again next time. You are listening to There's Always a Finreg Angle podcast from Global Custodian. Stream on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or catch up wherever you get your podcasts from.